When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This episode of 17th Century Warfare is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails on Patreon. Do you like your history podcasting? Do you like it without ads? Do you like extra amounts of me? Do you like series that you won't get anywhere else, like the Jan Sobieski biography series, Louis XIV's Arms and Armies? Quite topical when we're talking about this. What about the Age of Bismarck to come in the future and... Whatever the heck else I conjure up in this crazy mind of mine. If you enjoy When Diplomacy Fails, and if you would like to invest some money in it and send me along my merry way, Patreon is the best way to financially support me, guys. It is pretty much how I make my living right now, at least until I go to Cambridge, if I do go to Cambridge. So 
By doing this, you'll be investing in me, you'll also be accessing extra stuff, and even some merchandise if you go high enough in the tiers. If you're interested, if When Diplomacy Fails is something you'd like to send your money to, then by all means head over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or click on the link in the description below. You know how it works, guys. But anyway, whatever you do, I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks, and here you go. Welcome, history friends, patrons all, to our 30 Years War series looking at warfare in the 17th century. Last time, the French example of dealing with developments in fortifications, the Trace Italienne, was discussed, and we concluded that while these developments were unquestionably important, it wasn't so black and white as to state that, over the 17th century, the military revolution transformed France. Important additional factors, even down to the diplomatic isolation of Louis XIV and the range of his cannons, had a central impact on how France developed over the 1600s. In the last episode, now I know it was a while ago, like we released it at the beginning of June, but there you go, our schedule's kind of all over the place while we kind of deal with everything we've got releasing at the moment, but yes, in the last episode we didn't look all that intently on the actual soldiers themselves, so in this episode... We're going to do just that. How did the French army change between the 15 and 1600s? And what impact did these changes have, not just on its ability to fight the Thirty Years' War, but also to defend itself against attack throughout that eventful century? Well, let's find out. One thing about historians is that they will always rush to defend their specific field of expertise when one of their historian peers makes a generalizing statement about some era or idea which involves it. Take the military revolution idea, for instance, which provoked such intense debate among historians because Michael Roberts' original essay looked at all of Western Europe and attempted to make generalizing statements to support its conclusions. Now, we've already seen that Geoffrey Parker feels Roberts' essay unfairly and inaccurately portrayed the Spanish capabilities during the first half of the 17th century. In the last episode, we saw John A. Lynn respond to Geoffrey Parker's idea that the Trace Italian system of fortifications could explain army growth across Europe. And in the next episode, we're going to see why the Ottomans' case is not so easily forced into any easily defined category. The point is, while theories are the bread and butter of historians, in practice, for a theory to be viable, it has to make a certain amount of assumptions and discount certain segments of evidence sometimes in order to get by. It'd be easy to get frustrated with history as a discipline in this respect. What, you may be wondering, is the point in Roberts's theory when it blatantly contains inaccuracies and simplifications which cannot be applied as a blanket idea to all the varied peoples of the continent? That is a valid question, and thankfully, we're not here to answer it. I'm just kidding. Well, we're not going to answer it right this minute. What theories tend to do is to provoke what we mentioned earlier, that is, a response from historians that are experts on that particular field. 
They write articles or books and their peers respond and the ideas get spread around the historiographical landscape. And next thing you know, you have a full-blown historical debate on your hands, not to mention numerous fascinating, well-researched articles and books, which never would have existed had these historians not felt compelled to answer a challenge in the first place. In short, there is a lot wrong with the military revolution theory. I think it's pretty safe to acknowledge that. But it is thanks to its existence in the 1950s that so many quality articles and books are available to us now. Why else would such intricate articles need to be written to detail French army growth or the impact of cavalry or the importance and design of fortifications? While he would probably never admit it, Michael Roberts' military revolution idea was critical not just because it proposed a new methodology for explaining how and why warfare in the 17th century developed, but also for the kick that it gave historians to write about previously neglected topics. Now, I'd like to imagine that Roberts knew what he was doing in this respect, but that's probably a bit of a romanticised version of that historian's motives. Certainly, though, the military revolution provided a handy buzzword to search for, since when you found it being discussed between the 60s up to the present day, you were quite likely to find within that same discussion a new piece of research assessing a previously understated element of 17th century warfare. But while we've looked at some elements of the military revolution already, to get us on track for examining how the French army changed, we need to assess what Michael Roberts was actually claiming to have occurred. These claims are paraphrased by our friend John A. Lynn, who wrote that Roberts advocated a revolution in tactics accomplished by the Dutch stadtholder, Prince Maurice of Orange, and the Swedish king, Gustavus Adolphus which drove the older Spanish system of massive unwieldy infantry formations off the battlefields of Europe. New strategy took advantage of well-trained mobile armies to pursue victory, instead of prolonging stalemate. At the same time, standing armies emerged as land forces grew to unprecedented proportions, giving statesmen potent weapons of war for grand schemes. However, the gargantuan armies spawned in the 17th century, burdened society with crushing taxation, heavy-handed bureaucracies, and all the weighty trappings of absolutism. It's a familiar argument, the simplistic and straightforward cause-and-effect idea, where one set of circumstances leads naturally to another, but the unique circumstances on the ground in each state, take even that country's history with absolutism for one example, are not considered. If the military revolution cause-and-effect idea is so correct, would the Dutch not have embraced absolutism, even though the French did? In fact, while it is less popularly known, some historians would attest to the fact that absolutist control of the Orange family over Dutch society in the 1700s was merely an extension of the kinds of absolutist rule of French kings. Think also of Cromwell's unflinching absolutist theocracy, or of the enlightened despotism of Frederick the Great, or even the small-scale absolutism of the most minor German prince. These different threads of absolutist rule could of course all be debated by other historians, but Roberts's claims that the military revolution led to absolutism and increased the central control of the state administration cannot be simply ignored. There are too many convenient developments in place to do that. This, again, is how historical debates are born. Geoffrey Parker's key contribution was the idea that manpower didn't increase because of the tactical innovations of certain commanders, 
Michael Roberts singled out Gustavus Adolphus and Maurice of Orange above all. Rather, Parker underlined the fact that the Trace Italienne made warfare more stagnant and plodding and ensured that larger numbers of men would be required to fill the trenches surrounding the siege and properly starve the defenders out. Indeed, the idea that army size increased steadily as the decades progressed, reaching a peak in the 1700s, is a somewhat simplified view for two major reasons. Parker does not deny that armies ballooned in size, but he does make the point that first, armies had grown and fluctuated in size before, and second, these changes were not explained by Michael Roberts's nomination of certain key commanders, but by the demands placed upon armies thanks to the Trace Italienne and the steady growth of their neighbours. We talked in the first episode of this series about knights and how important their influence and then their absence was for shaping how European armies were constituted. Parker adds to this point with the notion that, while fighting in the compact regions of North Italy in the last few years of the 1400s, the French and the Habsburgs concluded that cavalry were less useful than infantry. What was more, Whereas knights required a horse, armour, a page, etc. to keep them afloat, not to mention the fodder to keep their horses standing, infantry, and especially pikemen, could be equipped with a sword, a pike, a helmet, and sent to the front line with far less cost. It would even be possible to deduct these measly costs from the soldier's pay. Parker perceives that this decrease in reliance on cavalry enabled European rulers to field far more men than before and to develop the resulting tactics which would later be perfected. No longer was the charge of knights on horseback going to suffice if your foe fielded so many men with so many pointy sticks. Horses simply wouldn't charge into these pikes, you would have to field pikemen of your own. Thus, while King Charles VIII of France fielded an army of 18,000 men in 1494, with about half of them being cavalry, King Francis I of France fielded an army of 30,000 in 1525, so about 30 years later, and only a fifth of these were cavalry. The infantry had come to dominate, and as the infantryman established himself in the prime position of the army, the Trace Italien made his further professionalisation necessary, and the development of tactics and strategy to go along with his training were also made essential. But just how much did armies in Europe increase from the beginning to the end of the 1600s? Well, it's time for some number crunching, guys, so stick around if you enjoy that sort of thing. Even though I wouldn't normally peg myself for someone who likes to look at these numbers, it is kind of satisfying to just look at these statistics in front of you and just imagine the hulking size of armies growing and shrinking across the years. In any case, we're going to do our best to kind of break it down so that it's not just a list of numbers. So, figures are predictably sketchy, but we can make some judgments on the numbers that we have. Starting in the 1590s and ending in 1700, the Dutch armed forces grew from 20,000 to 100,000. The Swedes grew from 15,000 to 100,000. The English grew from 30,000 to 87,000. And the French, most impressively of all, remember from the 1590s to the year 1700, grew from 80,000 men to 400,000 men. Now, remember, while that French number is shocking, we have examined in the last episode why the French in particular so inflated their army size. They had a lot of fortresses to garrison, with this act consuming as much as 40% of the army's manpower. And in addition, Louis XIV was a bit of a brat, and no one really liked him, so because of this he had to make 
enough manpower exist for his armies to defend his homeland. But stating these facts doesn't help us answer some important questions. How, for instance, did the French actually fight during the later 16th and early 17th centuries? Did French military innovation and tactics come from within France, or were these ideas imported from the likes of the Dutch Republic or Sweden? And finally, as an aside, what do these points tell us about the military revolution? Let's tackle these questions now, with a look first at the kind of cavalry used by France. It is better that I should die with arms in my hands than live to see my kingdom ruined and myself forced to seek assistance in a foreign country. These were the words of King Henry IV of France, who assumed the crown of that country following the ruinous wars of religion and wars of succession, which ripped France apart in the second half of the 16th century. Not only did they rip France apart, they also provided the perfect opportunities for the powers of Europe to get involved. The English and the Dutch supported Henry, the Protestant candidate from the House of Bourbon in the Kingdom of Navarre down the south, and the Spanish supported the Catholic candidate. This conflict only officially ended in 1598 with the Peace of Vervan between France and Spain, but much would have to be done in time for the next showdown between France and Spain, which, yeah, King Henry IV of France anticipated would happen in the not-too-distant future. As it happened, and as most of us are aware, Henry would be assassinated in 1610 and would never get the chance to wage war against the Habsburgs again. Yet his contribution towards the French army must still be considered, if we're to properly grasp how the French armed forces went from ruined, divided and distraught in the final decades of the 1500s to holding Europe to ransom under Henry's grandson Louis XIV a century later. Henry was known as the king who would put himself in danger while on horseback for the sake of inspiring and willing his men on to victory. When the Duke of Parma, Spain's foremost military commander at the time, confronted Henry in a siege outside the town of Umal in 1592, Parma remarked, I expected to see a general. There was only an officer of light cavalry here. The remark implied that the aspiring king of France was somewhat somewhat amateurish, and that he also took great risks while commanding his men. As the historian Ronald S. Love wrote, though, Parma was mistaken. Love wrote, What Parma failed to grasp was Henry's appreciation of the pivotal role in warfare of mounted forces, whose battlefield effectiveness he enhanced more than any other commander of his day. He dispensed with obsolete formations for more efficient ones, adapting his weaponry accordingly. He distinguished between types of military horsemen and their specialised functions, and he made original use of the relatively new dragoons. In short, Henry IV was a cavalry specialist whose innovations transformed the mounted branch into a far more mobile and deadly force than was available to his Spanish and Catholic League enemies, thus making a unique contribution to the late 16th century military revolution. Ronald S. Love was far from the only historian to refer to King Henry IV as a cavalry specialist, and the title is important when we consider the trend in Europe at the dawn of the 17th century. As we established earlier on, if you remember, infantry was becoming, or had become, the mainstay of the battlefield following the eclipse of knights and their replacement by the cheaper and more numerous pikemen or rudimentary musket men from the early 1500s. 
Henry's decision to transform cavalry into cavalry armed with rudimentary versions of the carbine and to incorporate them into his army as separate and distinct units with its own strengths and weaknesses to play upon tells a vibrant story. Henry's example is also fascinating because of how he dealt with the problems of his army, namely its lack of funds and means to pay for the cavalry that he needed. To make up for his lack of coin, Henry encouraged nobles loyal to him to field their own mounts and to pay for their own equipment in return for great gains into the future once victory had been won. This tactic, while perhaps a bit cheeky on the surface, fight for me for free in the hope that we win and then I'll reward you in the future, worked well most of the time, but shortages continued to plague Henry, and they forced him to make the absolute most out of the cavalry that he did have. This determination to squeeze as much efficiency as possible out of his rare mounted units led to a dramatic level of innovation among Henry's cavalry. Ronald S. Love notes of these innovations when he wrote, Henry adapted the cavalry tactics and formations of his day to compensate for the problems with his mounted troops and to permit them to fight on a superior footing against their more numerous and better provided enemies, whatever the circumstances. Specifically, instead of relying upon the essentially medieval attack, still generally used by other forces, whereby the heavy cavalry would charge with the lance in two thin lines extended 40 feet apart, the Bourbon monarch trained his men to form compact squadrons six or seven ranks deep and to charge with the sword, dispensing with the unwieldy lance and using pistols only in the ensuing melee. The use of the lance by the late 1500s underlines the idea that military tactics in France were in need of a change. The cavalry and its aristocratic roots had been awkwardly tugged along since the beginning of the 16th century, even while the infantry gained an increasing importance on the battlefield and the mass cavalry charges of yore became far easier to parry and block than before. Now this by no means meant the cavalry charges had become obsolete, nor would they be for several hundred years. Think that infamous scene in the Second World War when the Polish charged the tanks. We won't say any more about that because there's so much to be tied in with it, but cavalry had immense staying power and they weren't about to go away any time soon. Yet it did mean that battles between French cavalry on either sides of the wars of religion frequently boiled down to clashes with the lance and unwieldy efforts to close in with the enemy. Unless a breach could be exploited in the infantry, these cavalry appeared very similar in appearance and tactics to the knights of the Middle Ages, and they were just as inflexible as those knights. Henry's efforts to change this and to make the most out of the horses that he had were not unprecedented, nor was he alone in believing that the old medieval tactic of charging while heavily armoured into other heavily armoured cavalry was in need of a change. One of Henry's peers, and we're going to butcher his name, so watch out for this, the cavalry commander, Francois de la Noue, commented that the emulation of medieval knights and the charge with the lance represented a very bad formation. Delanue looked upon these lancers as outdated relics of an age before gunpowder, when cavalry was exclusively aristocratic and noblemen refused, from personal honour, to ride anywhere but in the front rank. The pride of the nobility, Delanue believed, meant that the old system was retained at the expense of proficiency, and it was this kind of ideology and traditionalism that King Henry was rallying against for the sake of military efficiency. Delanue appreciated from his years of experience commanding cavalry on the battlefield that the thin extended lines were flimsy and difficult to maintain in good order during the charge. 
although effective against disorganised feudal levies or riotous peasants, they could easily be broken by well-led cavalry or infantry in tighter formations, or simply by rough ground. Moreover, Delanue argued, the lancer was only capable of striking a single blow in the initial shock, unlike those cavalry armed with pistols that could fire at close quarters six or seven times with greater effect, and in the melee the lance was useless to top it all off. Indeed, this struggle within French society between the practicalities and demands of warfare and the desire for status, bravery and reputation played a surprisingly important role in the development of cavalry tactics. Another historian has noted that By the end of the first quarter of the 16th century, various factors had combined to challenge the heavy cavalry's primacy. Other types of mounted troops were able to function far more effectively under the evolving conditions of war but they still were plagued by issues of low status and thus remained an unappealing alternative for most noblemen. Although at least some of the nobles must have recognised that the heavy cavalry was in grave danger of losing its long-standing position as the star of the battlefield, the nobles still were not prepared to adapt by converting to a less prestigious type of mounted service, no matter how effective it might be. By less prestigious, what was implied was the more flexible light or medium cavalry, skirmishers or scouts, as well as the pistol-armed mounted infantry that we met earlier. The infantry were equally shaped by the lessons of the wars of religion. With less money to go around, the old tactic of the French crown to employ Swiss pike mercenaries went up in smoke and it became necessary for Protestant infantry regiments to find ways to deal with the lack of funds while still finding the means to defend themselves. This process was actually aided by the prevalence of partisan warfare, which demanded small units acting independently and able to move in flexible formations through the countryside. Partisan warfare was bloody and bitter for sure, but this baptism by fire instilled within French infantry the concept of fighting as companies. In the wars of religion, the tradition was for regiments, the largest formation of companies, to assemble for battle as a single line of small company squares in which soldiers stood only 10 or 12 ranks deep. These company squares were separated by intervals equal to the front of one square. All that really means is that you had men standing in groups of squares and that the gaps in between each of them was about the same width as one of their squares would have been. The gaps in the line could be closed in the event of a cavalry charge. Sometimes this arrangement would break down altogether and large squares might be formed to combat a mass cavalry charge of thousands of horse. As per the rules of warfare at the time, a typical European regiment would field three to 5,000 men. However, French infantry usually stood in regimental formations totaling no more than 1,000 men, largely because during the wars of religion, manpower was scarce. Appreciating this fact, Henry made the battalion the official unit of the French army and was forced to compensate for the smaller size of this body of men, because battalions were smaller than the old company and regimental sizes, by removing those gaps between the soldiers. It sounds obvious, but it was quite a revolutionary idea, and he packed the pikemen and musketeers closer together as well. Removing the gaps, even though yes it sounds pretty freaking obvious, meant that French infantry were much tighter together and they could respond better to the orders which were issued, but it also meant that pike and musket could be coordinated better as a fighting force as well. But how did it look on paper? Well, the pikemen were massed together in the centre of the battalion, flanked on either side by musketeers. 
on campaign, an average battalion contained about 300 pikemen and 100 musketeers. Henry's battalions were also designed to support each other in line or in checkerboard formation, and to move and operate in tandem rather than what had been the norm with the larger regiments. If you know your military history and you know of the Spanish Turkio system, then this will sound quite familiar to you, because the Spanish did something very similar with their Turkio formations. The pikemen were in the centre and the musketmen were standing kind of around the outside of the square. The military revolution as a kind of narrative is really about what happened when the Spanish Turkio squares combated the mass volley musket infantry, who weren't standing in squares and just fired rank after rank of lead. We'll come to that in a little while and we'll look at the Turkios in more detail later, but in case you were scratching your head and wondering, hey that sounds familiar, you're right, noble history friend, it does, but we're not going to talk about it right now. So regiments had been an impressive sight, since they claimed a size on paper of between 1 to 5,000 men. As we saw though, Henry was wise to appreciate that regiments were not well suited to the French circumstances. The regiment, often on paper, was far bigger on paper than it was in reality. As a result of this, it was also full of gaps, and it contained several independent companies. Then the required manpower was rarely on hand to make sure not just that everyone was there, but also that everyone actually fulfilled their role. It wasn't just a case that you had pike men and musket men, you also had people who were in charge of command and different levels of command and a hierarchy and all this kind of thing. If there wasn't enough people there, people couldn't do their jobs, people were disorganised, and it became more like a group of men stuck together rather than an actual organised command. Meanwhile, the smaller battalion was of a reasonable size, fielding about half as many men as the regiment, and the men were also packed closer together, as we said, which increased each soldier's dependence on his peer. Once Henry began implementing the battalion as the default unit of the army of France, its success began to show. Furthermore, the interdependence and cooperation between musket and pike was an innovation which Maurice of Nassau, or Maurice of Orange as I think I called him twice already, oh well, let's leave that mistake in there, I suppose it doesn't really matter because he was the Prince of Orange, but technically Maurice of Nassau was not the Prince of Orange until his older brother died. His older brother had been raised in Spanish Habsburg captivity and was raised as a Catholic, so he was pretty much not the Prince of Orange, but because he was the eldest son of William of Orange, he was technically the Prince of Orange, so Maurice of Nassau didn't adopt that title for a while. This is a bit of a rambling piece, but all it is really to show is that Maurice of Nassau was not Maurice of Orange, as I have been calling him. But calling him Maurice of Orange is still technically correct. For crying out loud, let's move on. So, Gustavus Adolphus and Maurice of Nassau were to perfect these innovations, but the interdependence and cooperation between Musket and Pike was also an innovation which Henry recognised early on too. Perhaps he didn't take it as far as his European peers, but he certainly wasn't ignorant of its effectiveness. It's also not entirely clear how much influence Maurice of Nassau had on Henry's decision to switch up his army composition to suit its size, or if Henry by himself decided that it was a good idea to combine those two elements of the army, that is the pikeman and the musketman, together and see what happened. 
It is entirely possible that in France, as in the Netherlands and Sweden, the circumstances on the ground compelled their leaders to make the most out of their position. As John A. Lynn notes though, the fact that these figures were all reforming their infantry tactics and arriving at similar conclusions buoyed each decision with a degree of confidence. John A. Lynn wrote that, In all probability, the work of Maurice was all the more impressive to the French precisely because it reinforced their own tactical development and offered refinements and improvements readily adaptable to French methods. Frenchmen served in Dutch service to gain a better understanding of these tactics. Marshal Touraine, later a French commander of prime importance for Louis XIV's wars, was a nephew of Maurice of Nassau and he was raised with the lessons of his uncle close to heart. Even while it cannot be guaranteed that Henry IV copied the Dutch example then, it can certainly be said that the French military theory was influenced, impressed and encouraged by it. Little wonder then that one historian has referred to the Netherlands as the military college of Europe. Just as French officers served under Maurice in the early 17th century, so others went to school under Gustavus Adolphus's brief flutter of military brilliance in the early 1630s. Claude de la Touffe, Baron de Sirot, who later commanded the reserve at the greatest French victory in the Thirty Years' War, that being the 1643 Battle of Rocroi, gained invaluable experience in 1632 and 33 with the victorious Scandinavians. Once the French entered the war openly as enemies of the Habsburgs and as allies of the Swedes in 1635, this contact with Swedish methods brought further adjustments to French tactics. About 1640, Turenne adopted the Swedish practice of marshalling infantry only six ranks deep, which made the line wider and also provided greater opportunities for laying down volleys of fire. However, just as in the Dutch case, the emulation of some elements of Swedish practices did not mean that the French lazily copied the Swedes, and it's important to emphasise this. It can be seen in the army composition, because while King Gustavus had increased both the number and defensive importance of his pikemen, Marshal Turenne reduced the number of pikemen to only one-third of the entire battalion, and he actually added more musketmen to compensate, because he wanted more firepower. Thanks to the availability of drill manuals published in the 1650s and 70s, we know that by the middle of the 17th century, the preferred French method of forming an army was to create two main lines, one in front of the other. In the centre of each line would be the infantry with its battalion standing in checkerboard formation, and those on the second line standing behind the gaps between battalions in the first. So there were still gaps, but they were more easily controlled, and because the infantry were in battalions and not standing all higgledy-piggledy, they were able to defend themselves much better. On the flanks, of course, stood the cavalry. If the manpower was available, an unofficial third reserve line of the raw recruits or less dependable cavalry and infantry were held, as were the older style of Malik cavalry better suited to chasing fleeing infantry down, who happened to be also vulnerable to musket fire, so yeah, you'd have to watch out for them. Speaking again of the cavalry, we saw earlier how Henry IV debated long and hard about the best way to deploy them. Michael Roberts' military revolution theory generalises that not until Gustavus Adolphus determined that the cavalry was better suited to the shock tactics of the charge, were the older tactics of the pistol or carbine armed cavalry rendered obsolete. I know what you're thinking though. <laughs> if you've been paying attention, you'll notice that the consensus about cavalry was a bit all over the place. The utility of cavalry in France 
went from their appreciated shock value with the head of a heavily armoured charge in the early 1500s to putting firearms and making use of them to going back to their roots as shock cavalry by the 1630s. The changes should not be imagined as abrupt alterations to the way cavalry fought though guys, but as responses to the demands placed upon cavalry in a given battlefield. Furthermore, the idea that Gustavus Adolphus pioneered the return to cavalry's more natural roots is somewhat flawed, especially when we consider the constant debate, even during Henry IV's time, about the best use of cavalry. During the turn of the 17th century, cavalry armed with carbines, pistols or other small arms tended to engage in wasteful manoeuvres known as the caracole. The caracole turned the cavalry into something little better than faster moving infantry and it was immensely wasteful. John A. Lynn describes the manoeuvre and its flaws when he writes that To perform the caracole, a body of cavalry several ranks deep approached the enemy. The first rank fired its pistols, wheeled about and rode to the rear of the formation to reload. The succeeding ranks fired and wheeled in turn. By the time the last rank had fired, the first would be ready to discharge its weapons once again. The intention was to blow a hole in the enemy square, but when used against infantry, the caracol almost invariably cost the attacking cavalry more than the defending infantry, because infantry muskets outclassed cavalry pistols in both range and power. So everyone was on the lookout for a solution to this problem, and the solution, it seemed, was to combine the best of both worlds. Cavalry would fire as a group from a further distance, and then they'd charge at the enemy to rupture its line. This would demand a level of coordination from the horses for sure, but it would also demand a great deal from the enemy infantry, who would be forced to endure a combination of infantry and cavalry tactics, in other words, firepower and then a charge, in quick succession. In addition, and a lesson which the French certainly did not learn from the Swedes, was that tactic which combined infantry in amongst the cavalry to provide still more firepower for the initial discharge of the weapons. Then, if the cavalry needed to make a retreat after their initial charge, they could withdraw to a position behind this company of infantry and then prepare their charge again. The key was flexibility, and thanks to the ruinous experience of the Wars of Religion, the French had been through the school of hard knocks, and they emerged on the other side scarred, but well-educated and immersed in the arts of war. Artillery was a similar story. While Gustavus Adolphus's innovations in the realm of artillery are undeniable, the idea that he invented the concept and that the French copied it is difficult to support. Indeed, since the early 1500s, experimentation with smaller calibres of cannon were the norm, and while the three-pounder artillery most popular among Swedish armies saw extensive French use, most notably during the initial defence of France in 1636 against a determined Spanish invasion, such small pieces became less important. The reason why the smaller but more mobile pieces decreased in importance as the century went on had a lot to do with the Trace Italienne and the popularity of the siege where French soldiers resided. Since the lighter field artillery could not punch through any respectable walls or fortifications, and since this was what the artillery was needed for above all, there seemed little reason for the French to lug these small pieces with them. Artillery was split between field and siege guns, and since sieges were more common where the French happened to be, the smaller calibre became less common on the battlefield, even while they didn't disappear. 
So in the last two episodes, we've learned much about how the French fought and why their tactics evolved as they did. It was not the case, as Michael Roberts would have claimed, that the French were caught in the waves caused by the military revolution and they just rode these waves as best as they could. Instead, it was evolution rather than military revolution and adaption to the circumstances unique to France that affected such changes in how the cavalry behaved, how the armies were composed, why they expanded in the way that they did, and how all these parts blended together. We're not finished with France by any means in this series, but in the next episode we're going to take a detour down a Turkish road and see what delights we can find. Expect to see the Ottomans provide their own exceptions to the idea that the military revolution brought about a paradigm shift in how conflict was conducted, and to provide a foil to the idea that, while the West was experiencing all these changes, the Ottoman Empire was merely sitting on its hands and not really doing anything. I hope you'll join me for that, but until next time, my name is Zach, and this has been our series on 17th Century Warfare Episode 5. I've really enjoyed bringing it to you guys, so I hope you've enjoyed listening. If you have, make sure to share it, talk about it, tell your friends, tell your dog, pet your dog, miss my dog. I love you guys. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.